Hello, my name is Demir Marusik. I'm a foreign affairs assignment editor here at Washington Post Opinions. Heads of state of all NATO member countries met in Vilnius, Lithuania this week for the annual NATO summit. These summits have, since the end of the Cold War, been dull bureaucratic gatherings. That all changed after Russia escalated its long-running war of aggression against Ukraine in January of last year, upending the entire security order of Europe. In the run-up to this year's summit, all eyes were on what prospects the alliance would give Ukraine on becoming a member. Some kind of clear signal was expected. Arguably, it did not come. Vladimir Zelensky, upon learning of the final language of the NATO leaders' communique, tweeted angrily on his way to Vilnius that it's, quote, unprecedented and absurd not to set a time frame for Ukraine's NATO membership. Zelensky's outburst made members of the U.S. delegation furious. I'm joined by two of my colleagues to discuss all this drama and what implications it has for the war in Ukraine and beyond. Gentlemen, please introduce yourselves. I'm Max Boot. I'm a national security columnist uh, for The Washington Post and a Senior Fellow on National Security Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. Hi, I'm Josh Rogan, and I'm a columnist at the Washington Post as well. Thank you. So, lots of emotions and fraying tempers in Vilnius. Max, you recently wrote in our pages uh, that uh, on getting Ukraine into NATO, your heart says yes, but your head says no. Ukraine got a pretty definitive no in Vilnius. Uh, it was a lot more definitive than I expected in the language. Were you surprised? I wasn't really surprised because it was pretty clear that the alliance was not united on having Ukraine join anytime soon. And in particular, there was opposition from the United States and Germany, uh, the two most influential members. So it's not a huge surprise. And I'm not sure it's the it's it's the wrong call either, because I think there are legitimate concerns about, you know, if you admit uh, Ukraine to NATO anytime soon, you're making NATO a direct party to a conflict with a nuclear armed state in Russia. But even if you say, okay, we're going to admit Ukraine after the war is over, then you're basically giving Putin an incentive not to end the war. So I don't think that it makes a lot of sense to, you know, announce that Ukraine is going to be a member of NATO soon, even though I think it's quite possible down the road. I think the focus right now should be on providing as many weapons as possible to Ukraine for the success of their counteroffensive and to roll back the Russian aggression. And I think on that front, the NATO allies are standing pretty firm, and they've actually been drawing closer to to Ukraine with the creation of the NATO-Ukraine Council and further pledges of arms from countries ranging from Germany to the United States. So I think this is still a, a NATO summit that will be seen as being supportive of Ukraine. And in fact, President Zelensky, although initially critical, uh, kind of changed his tune by the end of the summit and was more uh, praising uh, what happened in, in supporting his country. So, Josh, Max's point, I absolutely take it. Uh, by the second day, Zelensky's tone has softened. And, you know, even on the way out of his summit, he declared it a, a success for Ukraine. Uh, but at the same time, we, we had both UK Defense Minister Ben Wallace and uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan come out and say that Ukraine should basically stop complaining and be grateful for what it's getting. I mean, to me, it seemed like there was a lot of tension in the air that, that wasn't really successfully papered over. How much of a diplomatic train wreck was this, in your opinion? I kind of see it in a different light in that I think this entire issue was really a red herring and really a a distraction and a silly one at that, because uh, if we knew that the United States 
was always going to oppose real signs of speeding uh, Ukraine's membership and that they were just going to come up with some nonsense language that everyone was going to be equally unhappy with. And all of the resulting controversy seems to be completely unnecessary. In other words, Zelensky made a mistake. He, he, he built this into a big issue by being so public about his criticism when uh, he should have known that this is how it was going to turn out. Everybody knew that this was how it was going to turn out. And I think for the administration, all the focus on, the, on this is a, a useful distraction from what I think are the real problems in the Biden administration's Ukraine policy, which is that this uh, military support for Ukraine that Max mentioned is actually not as much as they need, not as much as they want, not as much as they're calling for, and that the United States is actually trailing behind European partners, including some NATO partners, on some key things like long-range missiles that the Brits are giving, like pilot training. Why are the Europeans training F-16 pilots? They're F-16s. Those are our planes. We should be leading that effort, you know. But for some sort of weird calculation inside of the Biden team, well, we can give them this missile, but not the attack of missile because they might use it in Russia, although they promise not to. But we can give them the cluster bombs, which they promise to use the way that we want them to. And so we trust them on the cluster bombs, but we don't trust them on the missiles. And we're OK with the Europeans giving them planes, but we're not going to give them the planes ourselves. And this kind of crazy, circular, insane you know, logic exists only inside the minds of a very few people at the top level of the Biden administration. And that's what's really going to make a difference in the counteroffensive. That's what's been, you know, in my opinion, holding up the a lot of this uh, progress that could have been made over the last year is this 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 hand wringing over this system and that system. And then, you know, we spend three days talking about the language over the communique. That's I couldn't think of something less consequential to the result uh, on of the counteroffensive and the ultimate important more more important mission of winning the war. What you're getting at there, Josh, I think crystallizes why uh, there's so much um, uh, hair pulling on all sides about this. It's it's because there's been a perception, I think both of you have written about it, that the Biden administration has been dragging its feet in a lot of this. And I'd like to talk about a little bit about the, the, the sequencing of, of what does it mean for Ukraine to be in NATO, not now, but not never. But there is, it did capture a feeling that this is just sort of symbolic of the Biden administration dragging its feet in other ways. I mean, Max, you write in, you wrote in your column about the so-called, quote, Israel model for Ukraine, which uh, entails, you know, providing support for Ukraine in the, in the longer term for it to be able to, to dominate Russia or to, to uh, win over Russia on its own territory. Do you think what was promised uh, amounts to uh, the Israel model? Are you satisfied? No, I think there still needs to be more done. I think my, my concern is that USA to Ukraine has been pretty ad hoc based on uh, kind of the the judgment of the, of the Biden administration. And, and as Josh suggested, you know, on some issues, the Biden administration has been pretty cautious, I think probably more cautious than they need to be kind of exemplifying what Churchill supposedly said about the United States always doing the right thing, but only after exhausting all the other options. And so, you know, Biden has kind of dragged his feet, but gradually has amped up USA, provided $40 billion in aid, which is the largest uh, amount of aid from any country and has been vital to Ukraine's defense. But I think there are legitimate concerns in Ukraine and elsewhere about what happens in the future, especially what happens if Republicans come to power in uh, 2025. Uh, and so I think the way to, to address those concerns is to model USA to 
Ukraine on the model of USA to Israel or to Taiwan. In both cases, it's not simply based on whatever the president in office wants to do. There is actual legislation on the books. In the case of Israel, there is legislation that says that the United States will help Israel to maintain a qualitative military edge over its neighbors. In the case of Taiwan, that we will provide the weapons needed for Taiwan's self-defense. And I think we need that kind of legislation to underpin long-term U.S. support for Ukraine to make clear to Putin that he is not going to be able to wait us out, that no matter who is in the White House, the United States will remain 110 percent committed to the defense of Ukraine and its all of its territory. And I think that's something that, you know, uh, is, is much more concrete than the kind of vague assurances that we got at the NATO summit. I think it would be very meaningful if that kind of legislation were to pass the the Republican-controlled House, which I think is, is still a pretty good bet at the moment. Uh, you know, first of all, on the sort of this sort of whole Israel bottle thing, I think it's really sort of, you know, uh, kind of crude and like very kind of unhelpful to sort of try to jam Ukraine into all of these like uh, models for things that happened decades ago in other parts of the world. Set aside the fact that the Israel model was part of a peace agreement, which is, doesn't apply here, and set aside the fact that it represents a $3 billion a year, which is nothing compared to what the Ukrainians are going to need, not just on the military. It totally ignores the economic and reconstruction side of the equation. And if you talk to Ukrainians, they'll, first of all, it requires that they win the war in a way that's going to protect them and they're going to have an army and, uh, you know, and a, a supply chain in order to defend whatever territory they end up with. But more for them, it's about the economic and, and reconstruction part of it, which is going to be hundreds of billions of dollars. And that's the part where the Europeans are also very lagging. And that's also the weakest part in Congress. And that's why I think, again, again, to sort of talk about even the Taiwan model, which has a lot of bipartisan consensus, right or wrong, as to what it is, uh, that just doesn't exist in today's Congress, definitely not in 2023 and 2024. And, and the weakest part of that consensus, especially on the GOP side, is that economic piece. And I think what you're going to see this September is you're going to see the House leadership uh, led by Kevin McCarthy being heavily influenced by the two leading contenders, DeSantis and Trump, uh, trying to cut out that economic support and trying to focus. They'll say, oh, well, we're giving them lots of guns and we're not going to support their economy. And so to think of a, a, a long term, you know, bipartisan, sustainable Israel model type commitment passing through Congress in 2023 or 2024, I think is the chances are, are zero or none, frankly. I, I, I don't I don't think that's realistic. I don't think there's the political will. I don't think there's the legislative will. So I just think that we, we need to stop thinking of like, oh, well, let's just th understand what we did in Israel 30 years ago, because it, it, the application is really very uh, uh, flimsy. Josh, I mean, Hasn't not making a decision on this and instead just offering this kind of long-term assistance basically locked in a kind of forever war uh, in the sense that uh, the Russians won't be deterred and maybe perhaps will be encouraged to continue the war, uh, even, you know, in a grinding stalemate for years, as long as, as, long as it keeps Ukraine out of NATO? Should, should there have been a more concrete sort of move uh, on NATO not to let them in, obviously, in the middle of the war. No one was really saying that, but but a stronger signal. Should that have been sent? The whole thing is too clever by half. Russia has every incentive to fight as long as they can, no matter what we do on the NATO-Ukraine Council communique, okay? 
and to think that we could game that is just it, it it's it's insane to try to try to think like oh well if we had had a stronger path towards invitation towards membership that Putin would be like oh I guess they're really serious I don't really think anyone really believes in their heart of hearts that, that that's really going to make any difference whatsoever and uh, it seems pretty clear to me that the what actually Putin responds to is when his forces are mutinying and marching towards Moscow and and killing each other in the fields and running out of bullets before we run out of bullets that seems to be what influences Putin's calculus I, I reiterate my very strong belief that uh, this is just a bunch of chattering class nonsense and that you know it distracts us from the real mission of giving the Ukrainians what they need to take as much territory as possible and that the you know one of the main failings of the Biden administration I think is to try to make it so Putin doesn't lose so fast right like oh we want to you know give the Ukrainians just enough to tie or just enough to grind out a slow march into the east until Putin decides to sit down at the table and thinks about terms that make sense in that particular balance of power scenario. And I think what we're finding uh, pretty clearly is that that's all that does is actually play into his hands and that, you know, the, the, the best thing that we can do much more than, you know, make this NATO promise or that NATO promise is to give them more guns and money <laughs> so that they can take more territory and kill more Russians. And I think if anything, we, what we learned in the last month is that, Actually, the Russian military and the Russian uh, effort in Ukraine is a lot more fragile than we thought. In other words, it's working. It's, it, it really is an unfortunate distraction that we spend time arguing with Zelensky over NATO communique language when uh, we should be you know, arguing over giving him actual capabilities to actually make Ru the Russians lose. Again, you know, I, I, I take both your points about the, the sort of distraction of, of NATO, but still... You know, it, it gets down to the question of when would uh, NATO membership eventually be applicable to sort of locking in Ukraine's wins? Let's put it that way, because doesn't the Israel model uh, of arming Ukraine sort of gesture at uh, an Israel model forever? Because Russia, you know, until really a, a catastrophic defeat for them, will always covet Ukraine on some level. Um, so, Max, can you react to that a little bit? Is it is it that uh, are we looking at basically a a multi year commitment to Ukraine with sort of no end in sight? And how politically sustainable is that? Do you think? Well, I think no matter what we're talking about, we are looking at a multi year commitment to Ukraine, which I I hope will prove politically sustainable. It remains to be seen. I mean, obviously, there is a substantial minority in the Republican Party of anti Ukraine pro-Putin MAGA types, but right now I would say you're probably talking probably 25% of the House Republican caucus, less than that in the Senate. So the, it's not it's not necessarily the uh, th that that faction does not have a have a have a hammer hold on the on either House of, of Congress. So I think you can see the potential for a bipartisan deal in much the same way as we saw on the debt default deal where the bomb throwers were trying to blow things up. But, you know, Biden got together with McCarthy and and struck a deal and and, and the grownups passed it in, in both houses. I think there there is a possibility of doing that for Ukraine as well, because I think there's actually more support among Republicans for aid to Ukraine than there was for the debt default deal. Uh, but in terms of what support for, you know, Ukraine looks like going forward, I mean, I think uh, the only way you would have a realistic shot, I think, at NATO membership is 
if Ukraine and Russia achieved a sustainable stalemate. And I'm thinking of something like the division of Germany into East and West Germany, or the division of Korea into South and North Korea, where you have a very clearly fixed border that becomes fortified by both sides. Uh, and then, you know, the U.S. sends the signal that if you cross this line, we will go to war. Uh, and obviously, we've done that with the defense treaty with, with Korea. We've done it with the NATO treaty with, with Germany. Uh, but we are very far from having that kind of sustainable uh, stalemate or that kind of recognized front line. Right now, the front lines in Ukraine remain very much in flux. I mean, the Russians still occupy about 17% of Ukraine's territory, and the Ukrainians are really determined to take that land back. And we'll see how, you know, how much success they have with this counteroffensive. Even if this counteroffensive is not successful, I would expect that there would be another one next year. So uh, we're not at a, at, a, at a sustainable stalemate where I think it's safe for, it would feel safe for the U.S. leadership to enter uh, the fray and say, we are willing to put U.S. troops on the front lines. We are willing to fight for Ukraine. Right now, we're not willing to do that. And I think that's a reasonable concern that we don't want to be embroiled directly in a in a in a conflict with a nuclear armed adversary like Russia. But again, I don't think we have to do that either. I don't think that's necessary for Ukraine's defense because they have shown that they are very stalwart and skilled fighters and that they have made tremendous use of the weapons we have given them. The problem is, as Josh said, we haven't given them enough weapons. And now we're expecting them to undertake this counteroffensive without air superiority, which is something that US forces have taken for granted ever since World War II. And I think that's that's a that's a disgrace and it's a mistake and we should be providing them, you know, uh, dozens if not hundreds of F-16 so they can take control of the skies and move forward and push the Russians back. And that's, you know, that's how we can achieve that ultimately sustainable uh, and defensible border, which I think really has to be within Ukraine's 1991 internationally recognized borders. I don't think anything short of that is going to be sustainable in the long term, although I would put an asterisk on Crimea. I think there's a potential for a deal on Crimea if the Ukrainians can take back the Donbass and the rest of the Russian ter occupied territory. Maybe they can say, okay, we're going to, we're not, we're not going to recognize Russian sovereignty over Crimea, but we're going to live with it for now. I could see a deal like that possibly being done, but we're nowhere close to that right now. And the imperative, as Josh said, is simply to help the Ukrainians to tilt the, the balance of power on the battlefield to set up the conditions for a possible end to the war. And, and we're just not there yet. You, you, you asked me if this would, uh, if we were heading into a forever war. And I think the, the problem with that frame is that uh, it assumes that if we just pulled support for Ukraine, the war would end. But Ukrainians are determined to fight with or without our help. Uh, so if we really want to avoid the forever war, the best thing we can do is to support them. Okay, gentlemen, uh, we do have to wrap this up. Thank you both uh, uh, for joining me. Thanks for having me on. Great. Thanks for having me on. Enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Uh, let us know what you thought of the conversation. Don't forget to go to the Washington Post website for continued updates and analysis on the Ukraine war and international politics. And please stay tuned for more coming from the Washington Post Opinions audio team.